Amen. Thank you, Carrie. It's beautiful. What a wonderful message. Straight from Psalm 121, tying in so beautifully with the passage this morning. If you're in first through sixth grade, we're going to have you slip out to, uh, I think, I believe, practice for a musical number. The fourth through sixth graders will slip back in here in just a little bit. And so we'll know to expect that. But the first through third graders will stay in their children's church. Uh, but the rest of us are turning to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, if you have your Bible with you. Let me remind you also about our Bible journals that we have available. I know some of you have taken advantage of them. Others you may not know about it. Uh, let's see if I have one up here. Um, we have Bible journals that are super thin. It's just the book of John. has the text on one side, room for notes on the other. And you can pick those up on the information center if you'd like to help cover the cost. They cost us about $5 a piece. But if you're a guest with us, we'd love to give you one. So you can pick one up on your way out. It's a great way to keep track of your sermon notes so you can circle things and uh, maybe highlight or draw. Some of you like to draw arrows or whatever and uh, not have to do that in your nice reading Bible. And so the Bible journal is a huge help that way. John chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Our text begins in verse 27. What I'd like to do is I'd like to back up all the way to verse 1, and we're going to read down through verse 42, because this is the conclusion of a three-part, we've been working through this account of the woman at the well in three different sermons. I preached two weeks ago, Pastor Ben preached last week, by the way, pray for him, he's preaching across town, uh, Grace Bible Church, their pastor's on vacation, so they asked Ben to step in and fill that pulpit while that pastor's gone, and so, uh, so Ben is, is ministering over there, so be in prayer for him as well. Uh, but, um, but we're going to read through verse 1 all the way down through verse 42 and see this entire uh, pericope, this entire section, and understand what the gospel writer is doing here. So let's begin reading in verse 1. We'll read down all the way through verse 42. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, or high noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, well, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. But you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, 
will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. For when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the people were, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he's told me all that I ever did. So that when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word in these few moments of time, may you help us understand that we may see, that we may know, that we may love you in, the, in a greater way. So we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Has there ever been a time in your life when you've questioned whether or not God is really in control? Or maybe you know that God is in control, but you've questioned whether or not God in his control is good. Probably every person in this room at some point in their life, usually in a time of suffering, questions what we call the sovereignty and the providence of God. What do these two terms mean? I believe in this passage of Scripture we have evidence, something called the providence of God. But in order to understand the providence of God, we have to understand the sovereignty of God. These may be two words that you've never heard before, and these may be two words that you're very familiar with. The word sovereignty we see all through Scripture. That means that God, as the creator, has the right to govern and control all things even in the most minute detail, because he is God. As one uh, theologian would say, there is not one rogue atom in the universe. Everything is under God's rule and control. Every aspect, every control, every event that happens in your life 
God is in control over because either God is in control or he's not. There's nothing outside of God's purview of control. The providence of God is a conclusion that we make based on the teachings of Scripture. And the providence of God says this. God is using his control and orchestrating every single minute detail of every event for the good of his people and for his own glory. That's what the providence of God is. That it's not as though God just has some random control for some random purpose, but that God has a very specific purpose that his glory would be manifested. And and if you'd like to see a uh, kind of a theological sense of this, we go to the book of Romans that's looking at the book of Exodus, and, and Paul tells us that the whole reason for the plagues in Egypt was that everyone in Egypt would say, wow, look at the God of the Israelites. Look at how powerful he is. Look how he rises above every other God and has a say in every minute detail of the universe and how he can control all things. The plagues were there to reveal God's glory, so much so that in the book of Deuteronomy, you see over and over again Moses saying, do you remember, do you remember, do you remember the glory of God that he showed you in Egypt? And so in the book of Romans, Paul says, listen, these plagues were given in every detail to reveal God's glory. So we call that God's providence. And you say, okay, that's great. That's really neat to understand. Pastor Joe, what does that have to do with this passage? Well, I believe that God's providence is displayed in an amazing way in this story. And I think that John is actually wanting to point that out to us. And I'll show you why I believe that and where he does that. You see, this, this account is given in contrast with Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus is John 3. This is John 4. And so with Nicodemus, we've said this over and over again, we've drawn all the parallels, so we don't need to rehash everything, but it's given in contrast with Nicodemus being a ruler of the Jews, a leader, a man who comes to Jesus by night, and here we have this Samaritan woman who's a sinner, who's, who's grossly immoral in her life over and over and over again, coming to Jesus in the middle of the day, and John's point is that they both have the same problem. They need to be born again. They need to have new life inserted into them because without the Holy Spirit being inserted into their life, they can't even see the kingdom of God. And it's evidenced by Nicodemus, Jesus saying you need to be born again, and Nicodemus can't see that spiritual truth. He says, do I need to enter back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, no. Ezekiel 36, you have to be born by the Holy Spirit. Water and, and flesh, or water and spirit. It has nothing to do with baptism. It has everything to do with the Holy Spirit. You have to be born of water and the Spirit in order to see the kingdom of God. And then we have the woman at the well, and Jesus says, I offer living water. And she says, where are you going to get this water? Because she can't see what he's talking about spiritually. Because in order for her to see the spiritual truth, she must be born again. She must have life inserted into her. And so there's this huge contrast between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. 
So Jesus tells this lady, he says, I am giving you living water, and if you knew two things, if you knew the gift that I would give you, and that's the Holy Spirit, we talked about that two weeks ago, and if you knew the one who was giving that to you, you could say you need to know two things, the gift and the giver. The gift is the Holy Spirit, the giver is Jesus as the Messiah. If you knew the gift and the giver... You would beg me to give you this living water and it would spring up inside of you as a well overflowing over and over and over again, more and more, a never-ending source of life for you. And she says, oh, give me that water. Not because she wants forgiveness from her sins and eternal life, but because she doesn't want to be thirsty anymore and she doesn't want to have to come to the well to draw water. And so John has dealt with both what the gift is, and then last week, Pastor Ben did a masterful job explaining Jesus as the role of the ultimate prophet, fulfilling that role for us, and who the giver is. And so what John does as he ends this account is he draws our attention to the unique details and how Jesus has orchestrated all of these events through the power of God with his providence and with his control to bring to pass the salvation of this lady. So what I'd like to do is to show you that as you see God's providence worked out in this passage, that you will recognize that God's providence isn't limited just to this account, but it extends to your life as well. And that because of that, you can trust God. And you can rest in the truth that God is accomplishing every single event in your life for his glory and for your ultimate good. So with that in mind, let's look down at this passage. And I want to show you three aspects of the providence of God that John brings out. The first part of God's providence, meaning God working out every single detail for the end goal of his glory and for our good, is in God's perfect timing. God's perfect timing. Look at verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. If you look at the way that's worded, just then and came back, it's obvious that John is drawing our attention to the timing of the events. And here's what John wants us to see. It's not by a mistake that Jesus showed up to the well just in time. It's not by mistake that just as Jesus shows up to the well and the disciples leave, the woman comes. Because if she would have started walking towards the well and seen 13 Jewish men, she probably would have have thought twice about going to get water at that point. And so it wasn't 13, it was just one. And then when the disciples are gone and the woman comes and she's talking to Jesus, it just so happens that just at the right time, just when they're finished their conversation, that the disciples show back up. Because if they had come earlier, they would have interrupted the conversation. And yet it's just as Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. And that call is placed on her life and she believes that Jesus is the Messiah and she's saved. She's given that living water. That the disciples show up 
And just as they show up, she leaves to go back and gives the, give, give them a chance to interact with Jesus. And it just so happens that the disciples are there just in time to see the Samaritans from Sychar come out. Like, this all didn't happen by accident. In other words, there's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as coincidence. Oh, well, that just happened to go well. No, it didn't just happen to go well. There's nothing outside of God's purview that the timing of all of these things happening is exactly happening when God wanted it to happen. That it's not as though this was just some sort of random chance because there is no random chance. God is orchestrating everything in his perfect timing. And there's nothing that catches God by surprise. Although it may catch you by surprise. God is never caught on his his heels trying to figure out what to do. So friend, where in your life are you tempted to not trust the perfect timing of God? When you say this couldn't have happened at a worse time. And God says, no, this is exactly what I have for you. I have allowed this into your life for a reason. We see this evidence. Turn over to John chapter 11. We're not going to look at this in depth because we'll get there here in a couple months. But in John chapter 11, we see the death of Lazarus. And Lazarus is sick. And so they send someone to say, Jesus, we've seen you heal people who are sick. So please hurry up because he's, he's looking pretty pale. <laughs> you know, His time is coming and you need to hurry. And yet Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick and he waits two days longer, verse, verse 6. And then he goes and he tells in verse 11 that our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, knowing that Lazarus has died. Verse 15, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. And what is, what do, how, how do Mary and Martha respond here with this timing? Look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And look at verse 40. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I bet if you ask Lazarus when he's on his sickbed, soon to be deathbed, if you asked him, Lazarus, is it better for you to die or to live? He may have had a different opinion than Jesus. And if Mary and Martha had, if you asked them, do you want Jesus to heal your brother or do you want him to let him die? They're going to say, well, why are you even asking, asking me that question? And yet Jesus says, no, you, you don't understand. Because as this trial enters your life, so my glory will be displayed like you can't even imagine. That I am, I am orchestrating events for a purpose. God works his perfect timing to reveal his glory so that you can believe him and you can trust him. God's children find comfort in trusting the providence of his timing. You say, well, I don't know how it's going to work out. Well, that's why it's called faith. That's why it's trust. One of my mentors would often say, 
you know, in, in my life there's a gap between what I see happening around me and what God says is true about himself and through the scriptures. And there's a gap there that I can't reconcile. What I see happening is this, and what I know to be true about God is this. And so I have to fill that gap with trust. Because I'm going to fill it with something. I might fill it with manipulation. I might fill it with fear. I might fill it with all sorts of things. But God calls me to fill that gap with trust. And so that little phrase, just then, they came back. He's drawing your attention to the timing of the events to say, trust God's timing. It's not happening fast enough. Oh, yes, it is. But it's taking too long. No, it's not. Trust God's perfect timing. Not only do we see God's providence displayed in his perfect timing, but we see God's providence displayed in choosing his imperfect messengers. His imperfect messengers. Look at verse 27. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Wouldn't it have been so much easier just to send James and John, the sons of thunder, down to Sychar to give a little gospel earthquake? Wouldn't that be great? Isn't that what that town needs? Doesn't that town need all 12 disciples going down, giving the message of the gospel, take them by force, go to every corner? Doesn't the town need Jesus himself right now to go down and and show himself as Messiah? What kind of messenger did that town need? Well, obviously the disciples didn't think it was her Why? Because of her identity. Why was she an imperfect messenger? Well, because of her identity. She was a woman. She was immoral. She was from Samaria. And in that first century culture, those three things would disqualify you from just about everything. Women couldn't even testify in court. It's a terrible culture, terrible society that was sexist, that looked down on women as lesser than men. But Jesus would have none of that. There's no cultural barrier that Jesus is not willing to break. As the culture suppressed women, so Jesus elevated them. As the culture degraded women, so Jesus treasured them. As the culture showed her immoral marriage and her, her outcast status by revealing that she could not come with the other women to draw water in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening, that she has to come at high noon, showing that she shunned from the village. Thus Jesus says, no, you'll do just fine. You're exactly who I need as my messenger. So verse 28 says, the woman left her water jar and went down into town and said to the people, come, See a man who's told me all that I ever did. Could this man be the Christ? While the disciples marveled that Jesus was even talking to a woman, Jesus went out of his way to make sure this conversation would happen with this specific person so that this immoral woman could become his missionary. Social barriers held no bearing in the ministry of Jesus, and he models for us that the gospel message is for all people and should be given by all people because all people are made in the image of God. 
The Samaritans were worthy of the gospel because they were made in the image of God. And this woman worked as a perfect missionary. Notice the disciples' response. They didn't even ask him about it. Now, there's a lot of opinions as to why. Some would say, oh, they just trusted him implicitly. Um, they, they, they came and they said, well, we trust Jesus, so, so we don't know why he's talking to her, but we trust him to do the right thing. Uh, I tend to think it, John is just saying, this was a really awkward situation. You ever been in that situation where you walk in and you have no idea what to say, and so it just gets really quiet, and you can, you know, you can split the tension with a knife? It's like, okay, something's happening here. You walk in, maybe they're talking about something they shouldn't have been talking about, and you walk in, and it just gets really quiet, and you go, okay, I kind of want to ask a question, but I kind of don't because I kind of make it think, kind of, it's going to make it worse, right? It's just super awkward. We don't know exactly which one of those it is, but the disciples came and they didn't even want to ask about it. So her identity made her an imperfect messenger, but her motivation made her the perfect missionary. The woman left her water jar. I read all sorts of opinions on what that meant. Oh, this is showing that she wanted Jesus to fill it up with living water, and we need to leave our hearts to Jesus. We need to leave our jars at the foot of Christ and let's be filled with Christ. And that's not what this is saying, okay? What does it mean that she left her water jar? It means that she left her water jar, right? And when we get to heaven, we're going to say, why'd you leave your water jar? And she's probably going to say, I don't know, I never thought about it, (laughs) you know? Maybe it shows her motivation. She's carrying a water jar, and if you can imagine walking with this giant water jar that's got water for an entire day in your house to do everything from cleaning, cooking, drinking, and all sanitary uses, and she wants to hurry back and tell the message, I think it just tells her her motivation that whatever reason, whether it's because it was too heavy or she forgot it or whatever, It didn't matter because her mission changed from getting water to taking the gospel. Her first thought was for others who needed to hear this same message. So so she went straight to town and sought out the same people who had ostracized her lifestyle to now tell them the truth that she had discovered. And I want you to notice something with her motivation In order to give the gospel, she used her words. And so we see not only is it her motivation that makes her the perfect missionary, but it's also her message. She used her words. She didn't say, oh man, my life has totally changed. I'm going to go back and I'm going to be a different person. And by them seeing my life over a long period of time, without me saying anything, they're going to see the message of the gospel. It's not what she did. She went back and she said, I'm different, but you need to know this message. And she used her words, friends. It is important that you live a life in a reflection of the righteousness of Christ and holiness so that people can see that you're different. And that difference will actually create, can, can be one of the things that God uses to create a thirst in them for what you have. You're different. You have something I don't have. But if you never put a name to that, your mission is incomplete. You have to open your mouth and say what she said. Come and see. Come and see. 
That's all you have to say. Come and see. Come to my house. Let me open up my heart. Have dinner with me and I'll tell you what's different. Why don't you come to my house for dessert and coffee? I don't drink coffee. Then come for tea. I don't drink tea. Well, then we'll drink water together and have popcorn. Everybody likes popcorn, right? Just come and see. You don't want to come to my home? Well, come to my church. I don't go to church. Then go online and watch the message, right? Just come and see. It's incredible. I was lost and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was hopeless and now I have hope. She opened her mouth and gave the message. There are two parts to her message. The first one is to see what Jesus has done. The second one is to see who Jesus is. Isn't it incredible that she now has spiritual sight? I mean, again, if you want to study, I think I mentioned this two weeks ago. If you want an incredible study, just go through this and just meditate on all the images of her seeing things. She saw the well, she saw the water, but she couldn't see that Jesus was Messiah. And all of a sudden, her eyes are opened. And when her eyes are opened, she can't help but want everybody else to have that same sight. Be born again. Look, look, believe on him. This is the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. You need to see what he's done. He told me everything about my life. The only way that he could have known that is if God revealed that to him. And then thus he's serving as a prophet because God is omniscient. Your message is the same. See what God has done. See what the message of the gospel has wrought. See Jesus dying on the cross, but not just dying on the cross, but dying on the cross for you. And recognize that God has demonstrated his love for you and that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. And so open your mouth and share the gospel message about what Jesus has done, but you also have to explain who Jesus is. You see, she says, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be, and she gives an identifying word, can this be the Christ? In order to have your sins forgiven, friend, you have to get Jesus right. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the promises. They knew what was coming. They knew the prophet that would come And the minute that they linked that with Jesus and believed that Jesus was that one is when they found salvation. There's so many applications that we could give in this one section. Just a couple to offer. The power of the gospel is not found in the messenger. I want you to see that. The power of the gospel is seen in the message. It is the message of the gospel that works in the life of the believer. And so if you say, well, I don't have education, I don't have power, I don't have understanding, I don't have all the answers, welcome to the club, right? Because the the effectual saving power of the message of the gospel is not located in the messenger as in somehow you will save them but I won't or I will save them but you won't. The power of the gospel is found in the message and God has chosen imperfect messengers to be perfect missionaries. Imperfect people to be perfect proclaimers. Why? 
Because God uses broken, willing people to accomplish his mission. Friend, if you feel imperfect, if you feel inadequate, then you are exactly the person that God wants to use. Those who thought they had it all together, those who thought they had it figured out and they were the ones through whom religion revolved around and they were the ones that had the corner you know, on, on the scriptures and they were the ones that had it all right and everyone else was wrong, Jesus looked at them and said, you're whitewashed tombs. On the outside you look great, but on the inside you're filled with dead man's bones. Salvation requires humility. So we see that God uses imperfect people to become perfect proclaimers of the gospel. Imperfect messengers to be perfect missionaries. We see that her eyes have been opened. That it it was not until the the phrase that Jesus gives, as, as Pastor Ben said last week, the effectual working phrase that changed her heart, I who speak to you am he. It's that moment that the Holy Spirit enters into her life and opens her eyes and breathes life and she places her faith in Jesus and says, that's him. I get it. I believe. And that's what happens with the message of the gospel. And the spiritual sight is now granted. The Holy Spirit breathed life into her soul. And in John chapter 3 and verse 3, we, say, we see Jesus telling Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God until you're born again. And all of a sudden, at that moment, when he says, I who speak to you am he, she sees the kingdom of God. It's there. New life given. What's amazing with her message is that she's not the only convert that day. She takes her message to the city And they come out to see Jesus. And what is their testimony? Look down at verse 42. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have what? Heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Their saving faith and spiritual sight was not based on the faith of another or the words of another person. The message of God had taken effect in their hearts. Kids who are here, listen very carefully. Teenagers, listen very carefully. The faith of your parents will not save you. Kids, you could grow up in the greatest Christian home with the greatest parents who love God. And they can pour the word of God into you. And kids, listen carefully. You can leave the home and you can walk away from that faith never having made it your own. That verse in verse 42 is so key. Kids, listen carefully. There's coming a time. We pray this for our children all the time and I challenge all the parents and grandparents in this room to pray this for your children to where you need to pray. There there, there needs to come a time. Let me finish my thought. There needs to come a time in your life, teenager, child, when your family faith becomes your faith. When your parents' faith becomes your faith. Where it's no longer we go to church because mom and dad take us to church or we memorize scripture because mom and dad tell us to memorize scripture or I'm just gonna fit in the Christian lifestyle but there must come a time where that faith becomes your faith. 
There has to come a time in your life to where you say, even if no one else in my family was a Christian, I would still believe this. Because I'm not believing because they told me. There are all sorts of beliefs that are there because someone else told you. Like the tooth fairy, right? You tell a child the tooth fairy exists and they'll believe it. Because of what you said. And if you tell them Jesus exists and is going to save them at that same age, sometimes they'll believe just because you said but there comes, has to come a point in every person's life where verse 42 is true of them. Look at that verse. If you have your Bible in front of you, I want all of our eyes looking at that verse of Scripture and their testimony. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard this for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That the message of the gospel, teenager, child in the home, is for every single member of your home. And our prayer is that the faith that is passed down faithfully from the saints in Scripture is passed down into your heart specifically. The Samaritan woman takes the gospel to Sychar in the city and she sees great fruit. I mean, can you imagine this scene here is Jesus speaking to this immoral Samaritan woman and she gets saved. Boom! Her eyes are opened in this moment. Bam! Changed. She goes into the town and she says, you got to come see this. I know he's Messiah because of what he did. And I know he's Messiah because of who he says he is. And the whole town comes out. And the whole town gets saved. So much so that they say, can you, Jesus, can you stay just for a couple more days and can you tell us more about who you are? And she sees unbelievable fruit for her ministry. Are you a little bit jealous? Are you a little bit jealous? Can you imagine going into work and everybody in your entire company comes to Christ and all you have to say is, look at what Christ did to me. Look at what he said about himself. Isn't that amazing? And they all go, wow, that's incredible. I believe too. And your entire, your entire company comes to Christ. I mean, that's what's happening here. Are you, are you looking at that and going, man, I wish that would happen to me? I mean, it leads us to the final aspect of the providence of God that brings us comfort. Our third point is that we have to trust God's providence in reaping his harvest, in reaping his harvest you see, God is on a mission to restore fallen people to his perfect image. That, if you remember to the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man who climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, right? And, and, and remember that story is that he calls Zacchaeus down and once again he places his call on the life of Zacchaeus, on the heart of Zacchaeus and there's no reason why this little tax collector who cheated everybody out of money should get saved other than the fact that Jesus says, I want you and you are one of my children and he gets saved and it's incredible. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 19, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. It's the mission of Jesus. And here it's that mission enacted on the city of Sychar, just like it was on Zacchaeus, just like it was on this woman's heart at the well. 
Jesus is giving priority to his mission. His providence is evidenced in the priority of the harvest. Look at verse 31. The disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, you need to eat. You need to eat. You've been walking all day. You need to eat. And he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And they say, did he, someone else give him lunch? I mean, is there someone we don't know about? Did the ravens bring him food? You know, like Elijah, like what happened here? And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. You ever been so engrossed in something that you forget to eat lunch? I'm, I'm pretty driven by food, right? And that has happened very often, but there have been a couple times in my life where you get so involved in something that you look up and you go, oh my goodness, I was supposed to eat lunch an hour ago. You know, I, 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 has that ever happened with witnessing and working the mission of Christ-likeness? Like, have you ever been willing to give of a lunch hour so you can counsel someone about something? Have you ever been willing to give of a meal that you planned on eating because something came up that devoted that, that, was, that needed your time? And you say, well, of course, I, I can eat later, right? I mean, I do have two other meals today. And so I can set this one aside to be able to step out and say, this person needs to hear the gospel. I'm not saying you need to do that every day. But if that comes up, where are your priorities? And so Jesus says, no, I, I've been dedicating myself to this mission that my Father's given me to seek and to save the lost. And I'm so excited and I'm so fulfilled by seeing this that my hunger's gone away, that I've forgotten I was even hungry. Because I've seen what God is doing. It's the priority of gospel ministry. And secondly, we see the timing of this harvest. The timing of the harvest. Verse 35. There yet four months, then, are there yet four months? And then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And obviously those of us who know our Bible well know that he's speaking in a figurative way here. More than likely he was standing in a field where the grain was sprouting four months and harvest was, was four months off. You could see the grain sprouting up. But he's not talking about a literal harvest that's coming. He's talking about a harvest of souls. He's saying there, there is no waiting when it comes to the gospel. God is harvesting souls right now. And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you've heard the gospel message, you've put it off because you think, well, I'll just do it when I get home or I need a little bit more time to think about it. And, and the answer here is no, you don't. No, you don't. Your faith and trust need to be placed in Jesus Christ today. Now, today is the day of salvation. That the harvest is white and ready to be brought in. Once again, you see seeing language here. Lift up your eyes. Because when you look, you don't just see people, you see souls. And so that most annoying person that you come into contact with every day ceases to be just the annoying coworker and becomes a soul who is destined for eternity somewhere. And so you lift up your eyes. It's very likely, not for sure, but it's very likely that at this time, the villagers were coming from Samaria to the well. And so Jesus says, there's the harvest. We don't know that for sure because we don't know the timing of, of this happening here to that detail. 
But it's very possible that the woman goes into the town, he teaches the disciples, and when he gets to this point, he says, the fields are white to harvest. And there they are. And they're coming to salvation. Friend, this gives us great confidence in witnessing that God is bringing in his harvest. That there are those who are ripe, who have been drawn by the Spirit, who have been drawn by the Father, who have been convicted by the Spirit. There are those who are ready for salvation and they've had the seed planted by others and it may take just that one more you know, invitation for them to come to the gospel call and be saved, for them to call out to Jesus in salvation. And you could be the one You could be that one who God uses just like the Samaritan woman to see that happen. And so you don't go out and you say, I wonder if anyone's going to get saved. You go out and you witness and you say, God is calling people to salvation. I wonder who's going to come my way. And you witness and you witness and you witness. And some of you are thinking now, Pastor Joe, I've been witnessing and I don't see any fruit. Well, and that's where we get to verse 36, and we see in conclusion the teamwork of the harvest. In God's providence, God has ordained teamwork. Look at verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you enter into their labor. You see, it's kind of confusing. Here's what he's saying. God uses people sowing and God uses people reaping, and most of the time they aren't the same person. So if you lead someone to Christ, it's probably because the seed of the gospel has been sown in their heart from other areas. I had the privilege of traveling with my father-in-law, who was an itinerant evangelist, for a year. And it took me about three weeks to figure out I was not called to evangelism. And traveling like that, we were in a different church every week. And, and I'm so glad he was. He had the unique opportunity to be what he called a fruit picker. And I don't know why God allowed him to do that. He would preach the gospel and scores would come to Christ. I was recently talking to Steve Pettit, who spent years in evangelism, was my father-in-law's closest friend, and they would travel together, and he would preach an evangelistic meeting, whether it's one day or three days or five days, and he said they would see, you know, one or two or three come to Christ. He said, I'd always call Tom to get an encouragement because I always knew that he would have seen more. And it was, I I was in a, I, I was in Guyana, South America, actually, where Becky and I struck our love. Uh, in South America on that mission trip and got to know each other. And, and it was on that mission trip that Tom was speaking. And, and I was in a, a, a service on, on the, beside this river in the middle of this village where there's only one building. And people had walked for over a day to get there. And he was preaching the gospel slowly because it was saying it was English but it was hard it was hard to understand a lot of times and the the building was so full that there were people standing in the back and people hanging in the windows and his message was really simple it started like this there is a God and he created everything you see and he created you 
And because he created you, you're accountable to him. And he started Genesis. And he went from Genesis through the Gospels, talked about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that Jesus is alive today. He put the identity correctly on who Jesus was. And then he went all the way to Revelation and said he's coming back one day. And if you don't bow your knee to him in salvation, you will be condemned for all of eternity in a place called hell. And friends, I saw hundreds come to Christ, unlike anything I've ever seen. And we were holding a medical clinic the next day, and he stood up and he says, I want everybody to know that if you do not respond to this message, you will still be seen by the doctors and they will treat you the exact same. This has nothing to do with the medical clinic. This is for your soul. They will deal with your body. Everybody will see the doctors. And hundreds came. And it, and it, it changes you when you see that. Because there was no manipulation. There was no promise of a good life. It was just the gospel. And you say, if, if I would have got up there, everybody probably would have walked out. You know? Why? I don't know. Only God knows why. But there are some people who reap. And there are some who sow. And in teamwork, we work together. And, and I love verse 36. The sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Well, God, I want to see somebody saved, but I just witnessed a witness, and, and nobody I witnessed to get saved. Well, you don't know that. You did not lead them to Christ, but somebody may have. Because it's all about being faithful to the gospel message. The the efficacy of the gospel, the effectiveness is not in the messenger, it's in the message. And we have to trust God's providence in reaping his harvest. I remember very specifically, I was a counselor at a Christian camp and I had a camper who we were praying all week would be saved and, and there was another counselor on my team who was just super annoying and and on Friday night, two of my campers wanted to go talk about their salvation. And so I talked to them. And while I was out talking to them about their salvation, um, the one we've been praying for got up and, and also wanted to talk to somebody about their salvation. Who did he talk to? He talked to that annoying other counselor, right? And that guy led him to Christ. And that kid thought that counselor was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And it just bugged the fire out of me. I'm like, I've been praying for you all week, kid. You're going to go to him, you know? It's a test of my sanctification here. And friends, if we're not careful, we can let selfish ambition creep into our Christian life and into our church and not be content to live in verse 36. And let me tell you how I struggled with that this week. You know, we're all beggars looking for bread at the same place, right? I had lunch with, uh, last week, I had lunch with a pastor and uh, a pastor in the area who pastors a sister church and I do that every once in a while. We encourage each other and pray for each other and he was sharing with me about how many people they had seen saved in their church lately and, and I had this catch in my heart and, and honestly, for like, and I was actually studying this passage, so it's really good timing for me, right? And, and I'm, I'm sitting there having this conversation, and in my heart, I'm thinking, really, God? 
their church and not ours. And we have to step back and say, we are called to be faithful, friends. So are you faithful? And we celebrate where the gospel is preached. And if God, if we are faithful with the gospel message and God takes the people you witness to and puts them in other God-fearing, gospel-preaching churches in our area, praise the Lord, right? Because our mission is for the kingdom and we're going to celebrate and worship with them for all of eternity. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, who then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. How does he end that passage? We are God's fellow workers, God's field, God's building. So be faithful and trust God's providence. There is a God. And you are not him. But we have his message. And as imperfect messengers, we can become perfect missionaries as we share the truth of the gospel and let God do what God does. There's no room for selfish ambition in the kingdom of God. We rejoice where we see the gospel at work. We've been called to be faithful. So let's be faithful and let's trust God in his providence and in his sovereignty. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth of Scripture, the comfort that it brings, the blessing that it is. We thank you for the fact that we can can see your word at work in our own lives. And oh God, we pray for a harvest of souls. We pray that we would see your church built. We know that you're building your church all over this world. And we pray that we would see it built here at Community. We pray that we would be faithful with your gospel, recognizing that we have a responsibility but no pressure. That we would be motivated by love and not guilt or shame. And that we would take the message of the gospel and see that you are the Savior of the world. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, would you respond and reflect on the truth that you've heard this morning as God works in your conscience? What you're thinking about now is what he wants to be on your heart. Would you do business with the Lord in your seat?